On today's episode, we have Eric Davis, author, podcaster, award-winning journalist, and popular speaker based in San Francisco. Eric writes on consciousness culture with focus on technology, media, spirituality, and subcultures. In his most recent book, High Weirdness, Eric explores the new psychedelic spirituality that arose from the American counterculture of the 1970s. In today's episode, Trad and Eric discuss Eric's writing, how being weird has opened the door for new possibilities, and how Eric thinks we can go about saving the world today. Eric, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So you are based in the Bay Area, right? That's right. I've been here for uh, over 20 years, and uh, I was born in Redwood City, grew up in Southern California, so I'm pretty uh, thoroughly Californian, though I did spend a, a decade on the East Coast. So I, I got to ask, what was the decade on the East Coast like, and did you uh, did you feel like it was a necessary experience, or are you itching to get back out there? Or no, definitely not itching to. No, no, no. I'm happy to yeah. be back in the in the crazy burning shore. But uh, it was good <laughs> for me. I, I, you know, I, I just I was always going to go to Cal. Um, you know, I had like Ivy League grades, so I was like, ah, I'm just going to go to Cal. I'm not going to roll out the red carpet. That's so totally obvious. And then at the last minute, I just applied to a bunch of places as a lark and got into Yale. And I, and I didn't even get that much pressure from folks. And I was like, what's more weird? You know, what's more unusual <laughs> was to go there. And it really, you know, it was pretty different. Like it took me like almost the whole first year to kind of readjust my expectations of social life and intellectual work and popular culture. And, you know, as I, I found myself with very different kinds of friends. And, uh, but in the long run, I, you know, Yale was kind of like a, prep school for New York City. And so I went to New York in the early 90s and became a freelance writer and so was able to do a lot of publishing stuff and magazine work that would have been a lot harder on the, on the West Coast. And so I, I really got a lot out of it, really enjoyed being in New York. At, that was a good time to be young and hungry and, you know, real lots of energy. And I really like worked on my career and, and had a lot of great opportunities. And it was a fun time to be a freelance writer. You know, it was real different than, you know, it was just before the internet. So before the internet ate my job. So yeah. And then when I, but when I moved back, I was really happy to uh, have an excuse to come home. And I really identify with being a Californian and, and doesn't mean I think it's a, you know, a, a utopia by any means, but it's very much my context and my, uh, my roots. Do you feel like cultures out in New York or different ones maybe were more receptive before the internet to developing their own scene? Were they more tolerable of weirdness pre-internet? Um, cause now we have this internet that is, uh, metastasizing into a consumer focused tool largely. Uh, do you feel like the culture when you were getting started in writing uh, back on the East Coast was much more experimental maybe? Yeah, I, I do actually. And and not necessarily because it was better or because people were actually doing things that were more interesting. I think people are doing a lot of interesting things now, but the whole context of it has changed. And I mean, one way of thinking about it is that the, if you call it like the underground or multiple undergrounds of coming out of the eighties, whether it was indie rock or, or, you know, post-punk industrial magic, paganism, psychedelics, uh, you know, UFO stuff, whatever, you know, there were elements of those things that, that manifested in kind of pop culture, but there was actually like literally a space for things to develop. You had to, you had to kind of know about something. You had to go somewhere. You had to go to a shop and then go to a, a club and meet people and then gradually become turned on to like where you could buy zines or whether you could, where you'd, you know, go see a show. So there was like a, literally you had to kind of explore space in order to find cultures. And then once you plugged in, then you sort of had this different underground world that, that in some ways was, was separated or, or blanketed from the mainstream. And it just gave more time for things to develop on their own. So they just developed their own weird insular sometimes or mm -hmm. hermetic kinds of qualities. So they were richer experiences. They had, you know, a little bit more of a political bite to them because even if they were, doing commerce, which most of them were, it, it, it was sort of like, let's try to outrun the mainstream or, you know, develop our own circuits and, and work within those. Um, and so I think that, that now, you know, with the availability of cultural information at the drop of a hat, you know, some enterprising, you know, 14 year old in the suburbs can find out more about the, you know, art rock scene in Cologne in 1972 
in an afternoon than I could have, even though I was into it in the 1980s over months. Right. Unless I found the right guy who had the records and told me the names of where to find stuff. So that means it's faster. And on some level, that's awesome because there's just more abundance and people get to experience more things. But it, it, it psychologically and culturally and socially creates a very different environment that doesn't allow the kind of process of, of sort of initiation and friendship and kind of induction into these sure. worldviews. So everything's like faster and quicker and more consumable, more like right. a consumer item, even if you're not actually buying anything, you're just kind of running through the information. And so, you know, it's, I, I think people are doing really interesting things. You know, I hear like current psychedelic music is often drawing from different eras in a very innovative and fresh way for me as someone who's heard a lot of the music that they're referencing or drawing from, mm -hmm. and then, you know, doing new things as well. But the way that they're combined is very different than a, a psych band in the eighties or nineties would do it where they were maybe just doing garage or just doing prog. But now you can have things that are like sampling new wave and, you know, hippie rock and, kraut rock from the 70s from germany and it's all kind of like woven together so it does make for a very rich set of opportunities but i again i think socially and psychologically it's not as uh, nourishing yeah and i think that the the direct experience you're talking about and the rituals that you were going through they have a way of making your work your mission or your projects they kind of uh, turn them into sacred projects in, in a sense because you they're uh, exciting. You're on this hero's journey where the uh, the world is kind of like opening up before your eyes again and again. You don't know what to expect. Um, and I feel like some of the consumer Internet is kind of robbing us of the excitement of that direct experience in the real world. Right. We're, we're just increasingly behind screens. And that's great. But there are, are some trade offs. And I'm so excited to talk to you today about your new book which you alluded to earlier with the, uh, the weird designation, but high weirdness uh, is an excellent book. It was just released and I would love to dive into it a little bit, talk to you about it. And, uh, especially the, uh, three characters that you chose to profile in here because they're, they're all fascinating people. They've inspired me. However, our audience, and I think the larger world, I don't think they know the depth maybe of the thinking of these three characters. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear about the genesis of the book and, uh, what it's like because it's not quite uh, PKD's exegesis, but it's uh, still pretty staggering. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tome. I mean, it's based on my dissertation at Rice University, which I got uh, in religious studies. So I'm interested in the problem of religious experience, and I've also really been interested in participating in the the kind of psychedelic intelligentsia for a couple of decades. And, uh, you know, so that's a very interesting place to be because in the early 2000s, when I started to go to conferences and started to write more about the psychedelic scene and became interested in it as a kind of intellectual place that was very multidisciplinary, you'd have botanists and poets and crazy people and religious <laughs> visionaries and criminals. And I mean, it was just a very interesting zone to be in. And, and so I, I, you know, I kind of took up a, a sort of space there. And now with the renaissance of interest in, in research in psychedelics, you know, everything is kind of changing, not unlike the ways we were just talking about subculture has changed. So everything's much more visible. And one of the motivations I had in the book was to write about psychedelic experience through the lens of questions about religious experience. But when I was coming to think, oh, like, what, when do I want to write about it? I, it was really clear to me I wanted to write about this period of time, the 1970s, and particularly the 1970s in California, and, or at least for, through the eyes of people who spent a lot of time in California. And one of the reasons for that is that one thing that's happening with the, with the psychedelic renaissance is that there's a, a quite strong attempt by multiple actors, both researchers, journalists, and kind of apologists or and, and new forms of healers to sort of erase and, and disrupt the connection between the counterculture, which is, was so over the top in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just radical, but also kind of crazy and, uh, and some, sometimes a little degenerate, um, bizarre, not necessarily about healing particularly. I mean, most people right. who were taking psychedelics in the 1970s, it might've been part of a larger sort of spiritual search, but any given experience was probably more about ecstasy and exploration and pleasure and, um, 
exuberance and transcendence and insight and wisdom and all these other motivations rather than the emphasis on healing and medicines that we have now. And so part of the reason I wrote this is because it's one of the more, you know, kind of intellectually engaged books about modern psychedelic experience that's been written for a while. And it's timed kind of intentionally to kind of go into this larger discourse and remind people a couple of things. One, that these these people who were doing, you know, freelance research in the 1970s, while not exactly scientists, were intellectually rigorous people who were really thinking and playing and experimenting with what the meaning of this stuff was and the kinds of results they had, the kinds of experiences, the kinds of ideas and and, and writings that that came out of it, offer a nice balance and a ballast to the kind of contemporary hype, which I think is, is, you know, threatens to go a little bit too far. We, and, and so we not only need to remember our ancestors, you know, just the way that, you know, people turn to indigenous cultures and, and sort of admire the way that like teachers or, 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 or teachings are passed down through generation and generation. And there's a sense of ancestry and, and transmission across time and tradition that in the West, there's also a tradition. It's just that it's a tradition of Bohemians and poets and scufflaws and degenerates and all this weird kind of stream of marginal exploration that I think we also have to take seriously. But the final reason is really a kind of more uh, deep one that's not even necessarily a a happy message. It's just that if we're going to take psychedelics seriously, and if more and more people are going to be taking them, whether through decriminalization things like just happened in Oakland, or whether through going to the doctor and get treated for your depression, that one thing that we don't hear very much about psychedelics now is that A, it has a relationship to psychosis in the sense that small percentage of people actually shouldn't take it because they have a predisposition and will go psychotic. Even more is that the experiences themselves are whatever else they are, healing, insightful, sacred, uh, enjoyable. They're also can be and often are extremely weird and weird right. to the point of a kind of breakdown or or if not actual psychosis, then something that can feel like madness. And this is very creative and very rich. And all three of the dudes I'm talking about kind of explored this realm, but they were also swallowed up by it to some degree. So there's an element of a cautionary tale in what I'm writing about as well, a kind of reminder that this more bizarre marginal uh, realm uh, uh, that edges close to madness, just as it edges close to mystical experience without quite being either of them, that it, we just got to pay it. We got to remember it and pay attention to it and recognize that it's part of the continuum. It's part of this new space that's, that's, that's exploding around us these days. Absolutely. And I think that has to be a part of the discussion because oftentimes the media is picking up on all of this and there is none of the context layered on top of this that, sh- that should be. And, uh, or maybe it doesn't have to be, but at least getting that out into this discussion more is going to be a healthy thing because it's, uh, it's been said that the madman or it's the shaman is the madman who heals himself or learns how to heal himself. And these, some of these experiences are in fact so weird that they, uh, when you come out of them, you're not going to be able to put them together or integrate them into your life or new behaviors or new new goals without you might have to do it on your own, basically. And so th- this is uh, the caveat emptor where others might not be able to help you. And, and that's a scary place to be um, because uh, didn't El- I think Marcy Eliad said uh, experiences like the flight of the alone to the alone or something along those lines. Yeah, that's and, actually uh, a quote from uh, that goes all the way back to Plotinus, late, you know, Neoplatonus, you know, after the time of Christ, but in the ancient world. And he talked about mysticism and that was his the sort of, the you know, the, the, the phrase for it. But it's a very appropriate one. There is something... Uh, though I don't use the term very much in the in the book, um, I kind of wish I had done maybe a little bit more more so. But it's stuff that I talk about a lot. Is that there's a profoundly existential dimension to psychedelic practice, especially when it's these sort of larger doses or more like intense explorations, where both it both in terms of the experience itself, where you're mm-hmm. alone with the alone and you're you know out on the edge of the cosmos and all of your familiar reference points are are you know, broken down or mutated as some something phantasmagoric, but also, like you said, and and probably even more importantly, after the fact, where people right. come back and they're like, "How do I 
what do I do with this? I was just going to say that, I mean, one of the characters that you mentioned, uh, we talk about him a lot in our newsletter and our podcast, uh, Terrence McKenna. He didn't have the easiest of times integrating his uh, experience in the, uh, the in the Amazon uh, when he came home. And it was a, a tumultuous experience. And as many of these individuals have gone through. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's 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 really key. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. In fact, in some ways, right. it's a remarkable opportunity to be able to, you know, be thrown back on your own resources, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And the intellectual part is an important part, even though a lot of times that gets sort of sh- sh- uh, short shrift. That's a great opportunity. And that's part of the reason I think people are attracted to them now is on some unconscious level, they recognize that while the psychedelic experience might not be like the truth or like uh, a a clearer view of what reality really is. It does offer the capacity to radically reorganize, reshift and sort of be forced to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps into your life, the way your mind works, the way you perceive reality. And that's dangerous. And it's definitely not for not for everyone. And what's interesting about the guys that I talk about, and they're all white guys, which is kind of, you know, I, don't, I mean, it, it's, there are a lot of interesting people that are doing, you know, who aren't white guys doing stuff at this time. Sure. But partly what made them the focus was that they wrote a lot. Yes. And they wrote yeah. really interesting books. And in addition to being writers, they were all intellectuals. And you, you alluded to this earlier. And that's the part that, you know, if somebody has a superficial knowledge of of Terrence McKenna and he makes these weird raps and it's kind of, he's not like a university professor. He's just riffing. He's like telling these stories or Philip K. Dick wrote these crazy science fiction novels that are kind of depressing and kind of hilarious. And, you know, we don't necessarily think of these kinds of, especially marginal figures as being intellectuals. It's not the best word for it, but right. I, I use it just to really underscore the fact that they read a lot in lots of different domains, sociology, philosophy, religion, botany, technology, cybernetics, et cetera, et cetera, quantum physics. And even if they weren't always, you know, if, even if sometimes they were fast and loose, they were all in different ways, but all critical thinkers, not just taking the visions as they come. They're not just taking whatever weird new age idea they hear. In fact, they kind of are constantly questioning, inquiring into their experience, into their reading, into their ideas. And that becomes part of the way that they both experience these wild, quasi-religious, quasi-psychotic events, and how they talk about them, and then how we, as readers of them, as people who can look to them as sort of, you know, maybe not models exactly, maybe not exemplars exactly, but sort of fellow travelers or older brothers who have gone, you know, down the road, that in looking at them, we can see how much, how this kind of critical thinking helps them, and also in some ways in which it didn't prevent them from falling into, you know, states of paranoia, states of, of inflation, of messianic conviction, sure. of, of pathological behaviors. Uh, and so again, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a multifaceted view of what it means to, to be on these deeper paths. Yeah. And in the beginning of the book, you say that this is a theoretical approach. I want to insist it will be decidedly experimental, more of an attempt at the classic sense of an essay. And I think that that is so important in in going through their histories and their work. And you brought up the fact of how many years each of these individuals had prepared themselves, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly, but they had all in a sense I don't know if they would say that they had heard a call or something along those lines, but if you dive into, say, like this Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, uh, which is a biography of written by Dennis McKenna about his brother Terrence and their adventures, uh, it's a fascinating tale of adventurers who go far, far outside the campfire. And uh, yeah, so let's jump into these three characters that we were uh, talking about. Um, so Eric, you're you're the expert. There's probably someone top of mind you want to start with. Um, should we start with McKenna, Robert, Anton? We've been, ta- we've been talking about Terrence. Usually when I talk about this, sure. I end up talking about one or two of them rather than trying to give a, a, a thumbnail of sure. all three because they're, they're all, they're, it's, they're, and part of the reason I chose them is that they're all different and yet the experience and the way they thought about them also resonate and are very similar in ways that are kind of an enigmatic. And I'm kind of playing with what sure. all had experiences that involved 
elements of you know paranoia or elements of science fiction or elements of religious experience elements of alchemy and magic uh, uh, there's a kind of cybernetic sensibility to, to all of them a sense of media and all of these very different things are all kind of resonating in different ways in their experiences and to me that has a lot to say about the 1970s as well as their particular kinds of reading or what it meant to be an intellectual person who was in the underground at that uh, at that time. Uh, but, you know, Terrence is a you know, great place to start. I mean, he's the person I, I actually knew. I had met Bob Wilson. I uh, never met Dick, but I, I was friends with Terrence and, um, you know, grew to both, admi- you know, admire his, uh, his knowledge and his creative intellect, like his ability to weave together connections and resonances and figures and ideas across time and to do it spontaneously, essentially, and something he was always very good at um, in doing, but also a sense of, of you know, uh, of some of his troubles, like, like a sense sure. of the way in which, uh, you know, psychedelic use did not necessarily make him a emotionally realized or fully integrated kind of person. Uh, in fact, in some ways, it caused real conflict with him down the line, although I don't really talk about that because I'm interested in just sticking to, sticking to the 70s. And he's an interesting sure. example, and he and Dennis are interesting in terms of the book and that the other two guys I talk about, Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, they're both older, but the McKenna's are baby boomers. So they're like in the, sure. in, they're in the shoot, you know, they're growing up in the 50s with TV and monster magazines and, you know, yeah. And they're hitting the 60s and they're, you know, in school and, you know, he's in Berkeley in the mid 60s. So there's all the political ferment, the hate street is happening, there's drugs and magic books are starting to be available. And so they, he gets really into the occult and uh, buying, he had a huge library already as a, as, a, as a young man. These things started to get woven together. And uh, for him, uh, psychedelics were a kind of call. Um, not quite a religious call. You know, there was a lot of people in the late 60s and the 70s who, who were on a seeker path. You know, they were seeking mm-hmm. spirituality. They were seeking religion. And sometimes they did it through psychedelics or a mixture of psychedelics in practice. And sometimes they turned from, away from drugs and joined cults or followed gurus or went out and developed their own systems. And Terrence was interesting in that way in that, in that while in some ways he was very much passionately he very much heard a call and especially a call from DMT and the particular weirdness and the particular sense of intelligence and poetry and animation and entities that can be associated with DMT. Uh, and that drew him into his life. But in other ways, he, he, he was less of a spiritual seeker and more of what I call a weird naturalist. He, he more imagined himself as kind of like a 19th century explorer coming from the, from the, the West to some exotic locale and, and, and finding, you know, finding strange animals, strange crystals, un, uncharted uh, peoples. And it has a little bit of that kind of 19th century naturalist approach to it. He, he thought of himself kind of as a scientist. He, was, he loved science. He, he was very critical about a lot of hippie stuff. They were into technology. They were into science fiction. They were into the future. He didn't think he thought the future was going to be technological. In fact, in some ways, he was a very forward-looking kind of, not quite a transhumanist, but he was, he was always thinking in terms of the evolution of technology in a way that later on it would become more and more evident the way in which the counterculture was also a kind of technoculture. But at the time, a lot of the hippies were like anti-technology. We got to go back to the land or whatever. And, and McKenna wasn't into that. So his approach to psychedelics was very different. It wasn't about rediscovering indigenous wisdom that's going to put us in balance with the, the ancient rhythms of the earth, which is to say the way a lot of ayahuasca users now kind of come to it or start to think about it. He was mm-hmm. like, it was all about the future and strange new technologies and strange new dimensions and new worlds. And yet his search for these things very much had this quality of a, of a seeking or a path or a call. He wasn't doing it in, uh, you know, in an academic way. He wasn't doing it in a university way. He wasn't even doing it in a particularly careful way. He was just following the associations and the leads that his own imagination and experience kind of unfolded for them. And that's why they wound up in the jungle in 1971 and had these, this cr- these crazy, crazy experiences that in many ways were pretty psychotic, at least for, uh, 
at least for Dennis. And I, I think McKenna's story is interesting too, because if I remember correctly, he was going into this with the thought that uh, he was looking for something real and he was interested in disproving uh, a lot of the new age things. And he wanted something that, or wanted to find something that was real, that could stand up to the uh, the scrutiny that didn't something that maybe couldn't be named, but didn't care if you named it or not, because it was just there. Yeah. (laughs) And 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 that's still part of the call. I mean, that's one of the weird things about psychedelics is that on on the one hand, if you, if you read psychedelic experience and you hear what people say about it, you know, it sounds like a dream. It sounds like a fantasy. It sounds like somebody making something up as they go along or some kind of, you know, uh, like an aberrant state of mind. And yet within it, you know, it can have those elements, but there's also a profound sense often of, of the real, that there's something right. actually being encountered. And moreover, when your buddy does it, even though you can't have his or her experience, when they come back, they say things that you're like, yeah, yeah, I guess that sounds familiar. So there's this strange way in which psychedelics are both deeply subjective and phantasmagoric and otherworldly and they are, after all, material molecule, molecules that are metabolized in very similar ways across human bodies and produce resonantly regular forms of experience that even right. if they're, each one is subjectively different, they have shared characteristics that suggest that they're pointing to at least something that's real in terms of the way our bodies are metabolizing these things, but it has this quality of a world or a pattern or a way of seeing that uh, if not, if it doesn't have exactly an objectivity to it, it has a sense of a kind of, uh, you know, transpersonal uh, a thickness to it. It has a kind of coherence across people and even across cultures. It appears we're mapping some type of territory, whether it's real or not, doesn't matter as much as the fact that people, they agree that there is a territory and we don't have it mapped yet, but uh, the process of mapping it is uh, is pretty thrilling. Even if it's just a uh, psychological space, um, we should probably start mapping it more. Um, so let's, let's go back to Terrence's uh, experience in the Amazon. So to set the stage for this, I think this is, he's coming off. He's, uh, he's lost his mother at this point. He's been on the run from Interpol outside the country for a couple of years from smuggling hashish and getting on the, on their radar. And Dennis, Terrence, and, uh, two other folks go to the Amazon. Is that the gist of it? Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a third person who comes in. There's actually four for a while. And then one of them takes off, but you know, basically there's this crew and uh, yeah, and what's, I mean, it's, you know, again, it's kind of a, a funny story on, on the one hand, it's like the ultimate kind of goofy, uh, romantic hippie, you know, exp- expedition. And they, they think of it as an expedition and they're bringing like tape recorders and the E-chain, <laughs> peanut butter. And it's just like, it. it's just, you know, really rich with that, that sure. time, which is part of what I love about these stuff is just, there's some kind of, there's something about the the naive foolishness mixed with this kind of audacity and real courage and uh, innovation in, in thinking about possibilities. So they go there to find a, uh, a rare DMT containing preparation an you know, indigenous preparation that they'd read about in a, you know, official scientific paper. Uh, and so then they, sh- they show up at this, you know, remote town. And the first thing they notice is that there's, there's cattle there and that the fields are covered with stropharia cubensis with, with magic mushrooms. And at that time, you know, magic mushrooms had a kind of funny thing. Like people knew about them. Uh, you know, they knew about the, you could speak, you know, hippies went down to Oaxaca and Mexico and did ma- magic mushrooms there or bought them there. And, but the, exactly when they came, when people sort of realized how available they were in North America and how much of that was seeded, it's a, it's a kind of murky story, but there wasn't a lot of knowledge about them. It wasn't a wide, there certainly wasn't widespread availability. But Terrence sort of recognized them and some hippies, you know, kind of turned them on to them. So they immediately started just munching the mushrooms. So they kind of gave up their quest almost immediately and went further and further into this uh, you know, mushroom experience. And, you know, one of the features that's really interesting about it is that he and he and Dennis were both kind of, you know, they had similar background and Dennis very much looked up to his older brother, even though there was lots of rivalry as well, but they had this sort of similar worldview that was part science, part science fiction, part, part H.P. Lovecraft, uh, you know, an enthusiastic exuberance for the, the strangeness of DMT, the sense of it being another world with its own 
character, its own inhabitants that was offering secrets about time and history. And so they had a, a similar kind of mind frame. And as they're taking mu mushrooms and smoking weed and eating a little bit of uh, uh, Banisteriopsis capis, which probably induced a little bit of twist to their, to their visions with the harming, they started to talk between each other. And then as they're telling stories, they start to kind of describe uh, a kind of speculative science Idea. account yeah. of what's actually happening and how the, you know, the relationship of these molecules to DNA and consciousness and the cosmos could actually be turned into a sort of machine or a sort of device that would initiate some truly apocalyptic transformation. And these kinds of apocalyptic ideas are, are I don't want to say a dime a dozen with psychedelics, but it's very much a part of the whole experience because when your reality kind of breaks down or when the, the known universe uh, that, that you're familiar with dissolves or gets radically reconfigured, it feels like literally the end of the world because it's like the end of your world. The world as you've already known it is now gone. And it's, and so it's, it's not, it's often the case that people come out and they have this kind of sense of some apocalyptic secret or some massive transformation that's just ahead on the horizon, which was very much true for these guys. But they were also kind of designing an experiment and that's where right. it gets to this weird science or this weird naturalism. It's not science, but it's not just, it's not, ritual strictly either and as they were talking they also sort of felt like that something else was thinking through them there was this sort of teacher who was sort mm. of using their own conversations to unfold to kind of bootstrap itself into in, into their reality or something along those lines perhaps and, and, you know and one thing that's easy to say about that is like, that sounds like totally far out and you can go yeah but it's it's just a lot like channeling whatever channeling is it actually happens i'm not saying that there are actually you know 500,000 year old, uh, you know, Pleiadian overlords who are choosing some middle-aged lady's body to speak through in Sedona, Arizona. But the actual phenomena of people going into trance and having these other characters speak through them and speak coherently and whatever, that's a real phenomenon. People aren't just riffing. Right. And I have to point out a really important caveat here too, is that that phenomena might sound like something that is never going to be welcome in uh, business circles or the larger public conversation. However, uh, behind the scenes, this is something that happens in terms of uh, different heads of corporations or billionaires uh, recruiting folks like this who are literally a shaman amongst the machines to uh, come up with ideas or solutions or speculate. This has gone on for years and years, but it's just something that people are still afraid to talk about. So there are a lot of people that take this uh, very seriously who control corporations or who uh, control a lot of commerce. So this is uh, in an idea that sounds far-fetched at first. However, it's been taken serious by people in our world for, for years. One of the things I do just to uh, you know tie into that in the, in the last chapter of the book, in the conclusion, I try to tell a story about what connects all three of these figures, in, in, including some of these, these issues about science, and but also these occult experiences that seem so bizarre. And I, you know, I kind of show how it's, it was, especially in the 1970s, was very woven into the emergence of what you'd call the network society, uh, both in terms of actual connections with some of the early nodes on the, on the internet and some of the culture around the ARPANET and Stanford Research sure. Institute and these organs that then help kind of invent this certainly, you know, digital capitalism and, and all that kind of comes out of it. So there's, there are some very intimate links, even, like you said, even though this sounds super wacky and it is that it's, it's really part of our weave. Uh, and and it, it's part of this problem of how, where do we get an innovation from? Where do we get creativity from? Where, where sure. are the new angles? What, what is happening right around the corner? How do we see, how do we get a sense of what the future might be holding? How do we start playing with different scenarios? And all of that, like scenario casting, which is such a part of corporations. Now that all comes, starts out in the like late in the sixties and especially into the seventies. And it's very interrelated to some of this consciousness work because sure. in a sense, a really good scenario caster is using their imagination that's infused with actual knowledge and kind of projecting it with a certain set of 
constraints and sort of right. seeing what these different arrangements might be and analyzing the different decision trees and, and speculating about them. And uh, yeah, but just because we're using words now, it doesn't mean that whoever's imagining these different decision trees and is thinking in anything close to to a word. Um, and we should talk later about, how, you know, how do we create a more perfect logos? Um, because we're using words right now, but we're still not showing people what we mean or what we're, uh, you know, we're not showing all of the context there. So there are all kinds of exciting opportunities here where the conversation we're having now is just uh, skate skimming the surface of. One of the things that I, I worked really hard on and I, you know, I, I like to think that I did a decent job at was, was to be able to go, go in there with language, which does, while it misses a lot of context and it certainly miss, misses the richness of, of imagery and vision, not to mention emotions and all these other dimensions of experience. Sure. But one of its features is that if, if, if done well, it can articulate and crystallize and clarify things that are otherwise kind of murky. So right. part of what I'm trying to do is to use language and even critical language, or in some cases, you know, scholarly language to identify and clarify and articulate what's going on in these experiences that from another angle just look totally wild and like, well, there's no coherence. It's just some crazy mess of ideas and it's like no 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 it actually there's a lot of sense here and in, in fact we learn by trying to understand what's kind of you know uh, what's going on with definitely you know, characters like terrence and, and and dennis but what there was one point that another um psychedelic writer made about about terrence mckenna in the jungle terrence and dennis in the jungle that was really interesting which is that up to that point most people who were thinking about psychedelic experience trying to figure it, model it, trying to understand what it's good for, what it, what it's about. We're drawing from, from already existing ideas somewhere else. So the classic examples from religion. So Timothy Leary says, Hey, you know, LSD experience, it's kind of like the Tibetan book of the dead. So let's go over here and look at this religious artifact and say, see the visions that are proceeding. We can use that as a map or a model of what's happening in psychedelic experience. But what D Terrence and, and Dennis did, even though they had these influences from before, from their reading and from their own thought, they were kind of inventing their model and their map inside the experience. Like yes. as they were tripping, they were starting to kind of do these feedback loops. And so they, became, they came up with this totally bizarre idea that has a strange kind of science fictional density to it. And even if it didn't do the apocalyptic thing that they thought it might do, it did something really powerful. It catalyzed a number of other th experiences and things. Again, that stuff is partly psychotic or full of synchronicities and paranoia and weird. It's incredibly creative. And especially when you later look at what Ter how Terrence influenced people in the, in the 80s and the 1990s and not just drug taking raver kids, but, you know, people, you know, thinking people, intellectuals, readers, right? I mean, a lot of people you know, kind of like to slum with Terrence McKenna and get inspired and, and his, you know, his words live on in YouTube and SoundCloud. And, you know, he's just part of our, of our world in a way. And to see where his inspiration came from and to see its complexities, um, I think is really, uh, is really illuminating. And as humans too, we fall into the trap of judgment and ego and, and all the things that we're, we're prone to. And we forget that we're just looking at a very, very small time scale for these ideas. So whether you're talking about like Terrence's time wave or anything else that might've been catalyzed by this experience, it's something right now that we can only look at with, you know, uh, a hundred year vision or something like that. We don't necessarily see the thousand year implications of the time wave or the teams or researchers that pick up these theories, or maybe even some of Dennis's uh, ramblings and true hallucinations about the decarb I, I don't even know how to say it. it's like decarboxylation maybe you, you maybe you say carbolization because he'll say like after a certain point it's just gibberish i mean exactly how we'll look at that and go it's not science it's gibberish <laughs> it's yes but there's something there you know in that yes. sense of something there you know is part of what i think it, you know in what innovation is like you can't get to and i i have a lot of problems with the word and the word that way that that gets used today and how it gets kind of confused with other things that people do with creative imagination and such but one thing you can say about it is that it's you can't get there simply by extrapolating rationally from already existing technologies or techniques. There's got to be yes. some kind of leap or some kind of mutation. But if it comes from things that are technically coherent, then it 
sometimes has more purchase than if you're just kind of making it up totally from, from, you know, from whole cloth. Uh, and, and there's something about that in the way that they try to develop a kind of psychedelic science. And the one element that I take the most seriously and that I talk about to some extent as a way of thinking about all of this stuff is the idea of resonance, that resonance is a really important idea to understand and explore and think about this material, but also what is happening to people, maybe yourself, as you kind of go into these realms, not just psychedelic ones, but also the occult and the paranormal and all these sort of weird, this weird marginal world. Or any aesthetic realms too. That, that's like, that's the, how these states were traditionally reached. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No. And actually I'm glad you mentioned aesthetics. Cause I think that's a, a lot of what our, our enjoyment of culture and aesthetics has to do is, is a, it's like a safe place little bit of what this stuff is when you take it farther and farther and you leave the merely aesthetic. That's kind of why weird is both an aesthetic character. It's something like a spooky story or uh, a fiction that's a little creepy and fantastic or cosmic, supernatural. It's an aesthetic quality, but it also starts to seem to be part of, go, go beyond that into saying something about the world. And that's kind of part of the reason I use, uh, you know, I, 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 I use the term. Um, so, you know, that, that whole kind of, uh, uh, way of, uh, you know, of approaching things sort of requires this, this sort of, this sort of leap. So when they finish their, their journey in the Amazon and they come home, uh, is that point, is, is this mid seventies now or, or where are they at? I know, I think Terrence's library burnt down in Berkeley at some point after the trip and where, where are they all at there? Yeah, I think the, I think actually the lab, the first library burned down before that and they, they returned, you know, Terrence has to work out stuff with Interpol and they finally get that worked out. So he comes back to Cal to California and Berkeley and, and enters the university and starts to get a degree, even as he's trying to process this experience and produce uh, both this idea of the time wave and then the book that he wrote with Dennis called The Invisible Landscape that came out in 1975. Dennis actually was working uh, and studying um, in a more scientific path uh, where he started to learn to actually be a scientist. Uh, and that's another you know, interesting part of the story is that he becomes a real scientist and uh, ethnobotanist and uh, pharmacologist. And so he's doing that kind of studies as well, but, you, but they're trying to integrate and model and map and play with and do something with um, these wild uh, experience, kind of science fictional experiences that they, that they have. And, you know, through that work, they end up really influencing the future by coming up with a method to grow Stropharia cubensis in relatively easy in a relatively easy way and um, disseminating that. So they, they didn't write the first mushroom growers guide, but they wrote one of the first ones. And certainly I, I would say the most influential at that period of time. And that too is an interesting kind of, let's call it a quasi science or quasi empiricism. Cause they're saying like, look, you don't have to listen to us. We may be full of hooey. Check it out yourself. You know, it's kind of like the way people who meditate say, look, you know, you got to do it yourself. You're going to get a sense of what it's about or whether it's worthwhile. And so there is that kind of respect for other people's experience in the sense that together we can combine these empirical impressions and somehow get to a form of knowledge, whether it's the equivalent of scientific knowledge or not. I have my doubts, but it is a kind of, you know, intertextual uh, knowledge that is sort of building up. Uh, as people have these iterative experiences with the, with the substances. And at, at this point too, I think Terrence is trying to run early ideas of the time wave by his professors and anybody who will listen or anybody who comes to his uh, yeah salons or just hangout sessions. Um, it, it, was that the case? And uh, at, at what point did you meet uh, Terrence, yeah, in, in the seventies. Oh no, I didn't mean to miss him. I'm not that oh, old. Oh, sorry, I sorry. Him in the nineties, when he was sort of uh, in that for you know his kind of flush of of fame, um, and you know he didn't he talk he, he would lecture about the time wave at that point, but I, in the seventies when he got back, it was an ide fix. You know, it was the idea he had received a you know, kind of apocalyptic map of time and then it layered on the I Ching and it had all these features that go along with a lot of what we would call like kook or crank ideas, some kind of like cross disciplinary system that sort of solves a lot of uh, problems and points to some kind of 
uh, otherworldly or, or, you know, otherwise unavailable kind of knowledge. In this case, the knowledge of the end of history and how that, how history progressed. Um, and he was really inflamed by it. And this is an example. And there's examples in all three of the guys that I'm talking about how, if they were kind of walking a narrow path, or I call it the tightrope, where they're using their reason and their imagination and their heart to go forward into these strange domains, sometimes they fall and they fall into different things. Robert Anton Wilson falls into paranoia. What Terrence falls into is a, a kind of inflation, you know, the psychological sense, like I have received the messianic truth and it has this particular technical form and so it has this kind of crank element and I'm going to like totally nail that down and come up with a computer program and prove it. And really that, you know, that idea is, is important to him throughout his life. And it's a funny thing because I, I never was very persuaded by it on a, on a technical level or even as a general way of thinking about history. Although as a general allegory, it's pretty good. I mean, what else, the house you describe or what's going on? Like everything is melting down. Everything is surprising. Everything is unexpected. There's disruption on every, all these different multidimensional levels of reality. There's this sense of like the virtual reality, digital world, like kind of putting its tendrils ever more finely into the fabric of our bodies and our social realities and, the, and nature and the cosmos. And so, you know, as a kind of science fiction picture of what is happening to us, the time wave is pretty awesome. Like it's, you know, it just didn't, 20, there wasn't anything particularly special about 2012. And in fact, if you look closely at what Terrence was doing, he was kind of fudging stuff, even on a mathematical level. You know, it never had that kind of consistency as an idea. And in that way, he was being kind of a crank. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to these guys. Uh, probably, probably, you know, I'll probably get in some trouble for that. I mean, Terrence would also say that he would make jokes about himself being a crank in, in many lectures. And he would say, I don't believe this stuff. I, I just want to make sure, you know, some of this stuff, I'm not sure if I do, but it was an invitation to hopefully get some insights from other people as well. I, I feel like a lot of this was, it was them or Terrence trying to bring in other experts because even the mathematician that poked a lot of holes in the time wave theory, I feel like Terrence was, he was kind of trying to connect with him or maybe bring other people into the project. Maybe not. Um, but I, I feel like he was maybe, maybe he just never built the team around it or I, I don't know what the case is there. That's interesting. When I talk about that to some extent, I didn't, I don't go into lots of detail, but I, I think there, there's sort of both. And Terrence was interested in getting actual mathematicians and scientists interested in what he was saying. And at the same time, he was only willing to take their criticism so far and, and, and wanted in some sense to keep his phantasmagoria alive and, sure. and defend against critiques the way that religious people defend against things. So it's a mixed bag. I think what's more important, though, is it might be the case that he needed one crazy idea that he would never quite let go of, even if he would very authentically say, I don't, I don't know if I believe this. He was like, yeah. I come up with this stuff. It seems to resonate. I don't know. And, and he would even say like, it sort of depends on how recent it's been that I've, you know, taken a big dose of psychedelics because you come out of those things and you're like, yes, there's some deep implicated time temporal thing. And then a couple of months later, you're like, well, I, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Um, and right. that's important to acknowledge too. And so he would sort of, uh, playing both ends against the middle in that sense. But it, even if he needed this idea to then to motivate his creativity, his, his, you know, verbal creativity, especially and his ability to stimulate uh, the imaginations of his listeners and to weave together particularly esoteric history and occult history in a really rich way that, I mean, as an occult scholar and historian is utterly fascinating the way he ties it in with these threads of the Rosicrucian enlightenment and, you know, all the stuff that comes out of his reading. And, you know, one way of looking at it is like, is that like, if you have a very rich, interesting, uh, literary, highly verbal, and to some extent, scientific mind, or at least you're interested in science and you can think in scientific concepts, if you have that kind of mind and you throw in a psychedelic and then somehow you, you're, you're pushed to express something on the far end of the experience, 
you know, you, you're going to come up with some interesting stuff. I mean, it's, sure. it's, it's better than a lot of science fiction. You know, it's like, it's true. It, it has <laughs> something more in it. It's something kind of rich, a kind of richness in it. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm willing to cut him some slack for that, but I think it's also important to be really clear about the ways in which, you know, he, he kind of fell into a certain sort of, I don't say the word delusion, but it, cause it, that's not right. Cause he was aware right. that it was a weird idea and that is precisely not delusion, but the way that he was captured, captured by an idea, which, you know, we're in that era now, right? Now you walk down the street now and you go, you know, like everyone around you, you don't know anymore. Like what, what wacky idea has captured these people's minds. And, and yes. now we're yeah. in an era where that, the stuff that I'm writing about was very marginal and for better and for worse, it is now part of the texture of consensus reality. This kind of playfulness between truth and fiction and there's sort of irony and then it only goes so far and then people fall into paranoia and then people fall into messianic inflation. And it would be nice to say, well, that's still just the margins, but that's not true anymore. So here we are. And, and part of what this book is about, I, I'm not too explicit about it, although I do talk about it at the end in, in the conclusion again, sort of trying to figure out sort of tricks of the trade or ways of, of using these, these outlandish experiences and the way that these guys thought about it to kind of come up with navigational tools with getting familiar with how this world works without falling into these traps and not pretending it doesn't exist, which is what typical rationalists or, you know, mainstream news people are like, Oh, that doesn't really matter. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, keep, no, I'm sorry, man. We're all in the stew, but there right. are better and worse ways of going through it and keeping critical thinking and keeping your intellect sharpened as I demonstrate through my own thinking about this stuff is to my mind, one of the, healthiest things you can do when faced Agreed. with all of these conundrums and possibilities and traps. Definitely. So Eric, if you're open to talking about it, I would love to get your take on what do you think Terrence's weaknesses were? So what could he have, uh, so he obviously couldn't have done anything differently. Maybe we could say that, but uh, what are some lessons maybe that we can draw from his experiences and that the uh, critical thinker could uh, learn from? And is, is there a way that they can look at his experiences and maybe avoid some of the challenges that he faced? Or is that even desirable? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I think I'll answer it as a slightly different angle, which is that, I mean, to stay with Terrence, I think that we could say, in what way was he un unsatisfied? Or what way was he unhappy about what sure. he did? And at the end of the game, and again, I don't, I don't talk about this in the book, but I, you know, I'm, I've thought about it quite a lot. He, you know, was not that happy being Terrence McKenna because he wanted intellectual comrades, like you said, like the way that he, he, he elicited responses from mathematicians. He's, you know, one of his big ideas, the stoned ape theory, which is getting kind of a, a renaissance, by the way. So and I think the stoned ape theory may actually in the end prove to be his I most- think so prophetic uh chemical binoculars are the killer app let's let's be honest if you're on the plane there's there's nothing that's going to beat chemical binoculars and yeah no ego and it's starting to creep into into scholarship more and more i mean a friend yeah. of mine just asked me about this and, and i went to a, a guy who knows a lot about anthropology and he was like oh yes there's been yes quite a lot in it he sent me all these links and there's like just serious academics going well it makes sense and it does make sense because it's a, a materialist thing it clearly has phenomenological effects perceptual effects acuity da 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 and so it starts to make more and more sense, whether it's the origins of consciousness itself. No one's ever really going to be able to say that because we're not going to be able to say, oh, this is where consciousness started in the Serengeti Plains and, you know, right, right. two, you know, that's just not going to happen probably, you know, short of some complete revolution in how we think about things. But sure. the idea isn't, isn't as cracked as uh, it seemed and it's, that it seemed to a lot of people. So when he put out his book, he really wanted it to like register with the intelligentsia, but they just ignored it. You know, just the way they ignored his talks, the way they basically ignored it because he was too early, he was too underground. And unfortunately, he was mostly talking to fans rather than peers who are gonna critique you. 
And that was partly a situation he kind of created on his own. And it was partly the thing that he fell into and it partly became a gig and it was partly, you know, more fun than other things. And, you know, uh, it, you know, it's a mixed world. Like all of the decisions we end up making are kind of, they're mixed of a lot of motivations. But I would say that um, one conclusion to draw from that, and it's one that I drew, so then we can speak even more intimately, is that when I thought about this stuff, I wanted to do it with more scholarly rigor. I wanted to get a PhD. And this book, in fact, is actually a very long planned, uh, it's a kind of Trojan horse. It's like, let's see if I can using contemporary scholarly tools, not invoking mystical forces, not invoking otherworldly aliens, whatever, just using history and some psychology and some systems theory and, you know, kind of a grab bag, an experimental grab bag of philosophical tools. Let's see if I can construct a way to think about these things in the intelligentsia and are going, God, the psychedelic stuff, we got to pay attention to it. And you read this stuff, you're going to have to kind of deal with problems that maybe 10 years ago you could just sweep under the carpet. And I'm like, no, 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 this stuff is no joke. We're not, we have, it's part of the, it's part of where we are now that we got to think about it. We got to process it. We got to work with it. Or at least some of us are going to be working with it. So in a way, I think that, and I partly, you know, it was like, wow, this is what kind of what happens. You can go, like, I could see at a point in my life where I was like, oh, I could keep staying in the underground, be a psychedelic figure in the underground, have people think I was groovy, maybe be a bit of a cult leader. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to go that, that route, which subsequently other individuals, which we don't need to talk about, attempted to kind of manifest in ways that sure. I think wound up being rather problematic. And so I was very happy I made that decision, but it didn't quite, then I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to stay in this kind of marginal place and being a writer? And I was like, no, I'm going to get a PhD, write a dissertation, write an awesome book that you can't ignore if you're interested in this stuff. And then let's see what happens. Let's see how people respond, criticize it, build on it, reframe it. But like, let's get the discourse going. So that's, 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 I think is a, a, a help, is that in a way he's a, he he was before his time there wasn't really a context for his kind of thinking and he was a unsystematic thinker a profoundly creative and poetic one much more than I am I'm I'm more of a you know thinker type rather than a sort of poetic do you think that that type of academic rigor and cuz what you're describing is almost like uh you know the union of opposites right you have the experimental the chaotic edges and fringes here and then the very systematic uh you know, hierarchical nature of like academia and everything. Do you think that that is what is needed most in this space right now? And in this, as we start to explore these topics more, um, do you feel like, do you feel like there's a gap of people that are willing to have the direct experience, do the work themselves, and then also be able to blend in with academics or business leaders? Um, because in my mind, that seems to be, I don't run into many folks, I think, who can walk both those paths, kind of. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's where a lot of the action is um, at this point. Um, and for, for me, it's, it's actually less about the, all of the, the, the really visible discourse around healing, around trauma, around end-of-life anxiety, the psychological approach, the medicine, turning it into a medicine, a pharmaceutical, treating depression. That's all great, you know. Well, it's not great. It's got some real problems with it. In fact, I think we're going to see some really dark sides of the corporate manipulation and the kind of institutionalization of psychedelic yeah. medicine. But leaving, I don't want to, I want to, don't, leaving that one aside. But in the meantime, there's this space that no one's really talking about where it's like, how do people who are deeply embedded in their worlds with their knowledge forms, whether they're, you know, technologists or, in my case, kind of scholars or psychologists or cognitive philosophers or, uh, you know, artists or whatever, like what, what does it mean to take these things more seriously? Meaning that we really pay attention to what's going on. It's not recreational, but taking them seriously almost precisely means not taking them literally. So what do we do when we start to do that and then start talking about it and weaving it together? Like what is psychedelic philosophy going to look like? in 20 years, it's going to look pretty interesting right now. It's kind of inchoate. And I don't want to say philosophy. Like it's just like those questions that don't really matter that people talk about. And some of them are academics in the classical definition, maybe a philosophy, a more, a more robust sense of it, both in terms of the, the need for personal philosophy. And I do believe that our moment right now, one of the best things about living through 
uh, such a chaotic time that's only going to get more chaotic and more uh, potentially psychotic for, for a lot of people is that you have almost no choice but to really get down and develop yourself, not in a new age wellness way, but in a cognitive, philosophical mind training Jedi way. And yes. I think psychedelics, just the fact that they're there, even if they're not what they seem to be, the relationship with them and the relationship with intelligent people who are exploring them be, creates a context for that kind of like live, you know, engagement that has this critical thinking, but is also recognizing that reality itself doesn't really is no longer working the way that it seemed like it was working in the rational individualistic uh, 19th, 20th century that we just things are weirder than that. And they require different set of skills, imagination, intuition, connections with spirits, personal spiritual practice, uh, relationship to uh, religious ethics rather than instrumental ethics. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's on the table that I think, you know, hopefully gets uh, rewoven partly through intelligent people taking psychedelics and again, taking them seriously without taking them literally. Couldn't agree more. And uh, Eric, one final uh, question here. I would love if you could just share with listeners, um, you've explored a lot, you've written a lot, you've read a lot, you've had a lot of experiences uh, that other people obviously have not had. What's most exciting for you right now? Where where are you hopeful? And where is there anything on your horizon where you feel like, these type of breakthroughs could really solve a lot of our challenges because obviously psychedelics are not a panacea. We've, we've gone over that, but there are so many new technologies that are coming down the pike that we desperately need to bootstrap because there are 3 billion uh, people in developing countries that want our standard of living. And if we're going to provide a standard of living for everyone that's uh, incredible without destroying the earth, we have to we have to fix things really fast. So how do we fix things and what are you excited about? Well, you know, I just, I just read a, uh, there was an amusing op-ed today in the New York Times about a sort of uh, a kind of lug luxury communism and what they were talking about. And they were doing it in a funny way, but also a serious way is they were saying, look, if, if like half of these promises of new technologies come to be true, if we're able to like, you know, that create meat and do that, you know, all the, like the things that, it, it, that are part of a sort of uh, forward looking Silicon Valley, not the disruption finance part, but the like solve everything. <laughs> and we kind of are able to, 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 you know, whatever mine asteroids and do all this kind of stuff. We really could have a chance at creating a situation that's a radically different world, right. people are, are able to reap the benefits of them. Now, when I say that, and the guy who writing the op-ed knows this, we all go, no, no, that's not going to happen. And why do we do that? Because of something that another uh, uh, cultural critic I really admire called Mark Fisher talked about, talked about the problem of capitalist realism, which is that, and what he meant by it was that we have this idea that the only realistic option, and that says, well, you know, be realistic, is capitalism, that there's no way out. That it is it. Like, and, you know, Zizek says it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And that's true in the sense that we are, we're all bought into that one. And yet we can see that everything's so disruptive. The stories about who we are, beliefs about the future are so liquid, even though some of them are becoming quite, you know, racist and quote unquote traditionalist and and nationalist and populist and, and it's like pulling against this science fiction possibility with some hope we can imagine a world that where these technologies are able to deal with a, a post-capitalist reality now the only way we're going to do that and i'm not saying like you know like one where we you know we shoot all the capitalists but whatever you know i, I just I, in a way it doesn't matter but our ability to even start to think that way requires the imagination it requires us to genuinely embody and incarnate possibility in a way that we've all just been terribly beat down. And so even though we know everything's changing, we're also almost all, so many of us now are, are pessimistic, radically pessimistic about the future. There's no hope. There's no way out. Yeah. All these things are going to happen. It's, it's the game is up. It's, it's just a house of cards, all this, this way of being. And it might be true, but at the very least, as we flame out, 
to have a kind of revivified imagination and not just an individual telling a story or writing a science fiction, but a way that we reimagine what it means to relate to each other, to build collaborative efforts, to be inspired at the, at our ability to move between these worlds. We don't live in a psychedelic place. You don't, you know, that's one of the mistakes that new agers and hippies made is like, Oh, I get the vision. And then I try to live there by like dropping out and not doing anything. Well, no, that's the same problem as the straight who doesn't want to look at it at all. So we have to become much more flexible and Huxley said amphibious where we're operating as intellects in a technological society. But we have some envisioning of how to drive this thing in a way that is going to make a much better life for more, more people. Uh, and, and be able to deal with their legitimate desires to have, have a washer dryer or, you know, entertainment on their phone or whatever. I mean, we're about sure. to see like what happens when like all the poor people in India get, get on the internet, man. And it's going to be so weird. I mean, there's, it's just starting yeah. in a way, but I think that, you know, there's other things I could say about psychedelics in terms of healing, in terms of uh, its relationship to spirituality, a lot of stuff to say, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling that the, the, gap lies in some kind of imagination, uh, utopian, crazy, visionary, exuberant, and even in the face of maybe almost uh, inevitable demise. Well, what a right. better, that's a much better way to go out in my book. Absolutely. Yeah. You, uh, you, you can't go out, uh, holding the answers in your hand for sure. And, uh, Terrence said, you know, we want to be exemplars of humanity at the end of the time. And, uh, I think that those type of lofty aspirations are, uh, necessary to say the least. So Eric, those were wise words. I really enjoyed our interview. You'll have to come back on for everyone listening. High weirdness, drugs, esoterica, and visionary experience in the seventies is out now. Go pick it up and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, man. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.